0: Good morning, Peninsula Grace. Uh, it's uh, it's good to be here with you. If I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I get to serve here as one of the uh, pastors, and it's uh, and I'm excited about continuing our series through uh, the covenants of Scripture. Last week, Justin uh, kicked us off by. Uh, by looking at Genesis chapter 1 and o- over the, where we saw God creating and commissioning Adam and Eve. And then over the next, so over the next uh, 12 weeks, the course of most of the fall, we're going to be looking at these covenants, these agreements uh, that God has entered into with humanity, uh, with uh, the people that He created. Uh, and what we've said is that these covenants, these agreements, uh, these relational agreements are like. Um, are like the uh, the backbone or uh, the, the skeleton in on which the progression that's uh, that's found in scripture. Hangs. So, if you can imagine, like most of Scripture being just the meat and the flesh of a body, the teachings in Scripture, the stories, the the more the more the, mor- the moral teachings, the insight—they're like the meat and the flesh. These covenants, these six covenants that God enters into through in in time and space and history with humans, are like the skeleton, the backbone, the bones uh, that that all of it hangs on and folds. It forms the structure for us uh, for Scripture. Okay, and as I said, last week Justin kicked us off by looking at uh, the first covenant that God entered into at creation uh, with Adam and Eve. He commissioned Adam and Eve, and what we said is that uh, uh, what we said is that God created, this is how Justin framed it for us, God created human beings for relationship with him, for rulership under him, and for restful worship of him. So they were created for intimacy with him. They were created to to know and to and to interact with and to enjoy God's presence. They were created for rulership under him. They were they were to exercise dominion over creation. That's a crazy thought that humans, that Adam and Eve were to exercise dominion. And then in the, in the next chapter, in chapter two, we see Adam and Eve naming, or Adam names the animals that God, that God brings them. That's the sign of like an authority, uh, authority that God has given them as, as a king. They're in a garden, which is a, which is a royal office. Uh, so they're kings and queens in this representing god's reign in his creation and then they're to restfully worship him not only are the kings and queens they're 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 like priests in god's temple that are to facilitate the worship and the enjoyment of god's presence okay so those are these are the three elements of of the of this creation covenant that we see in genesis 1. now today i get to be like the uh uh, if you guys are familiar with Parks and Recs, I get to be with the the Ben Wyatt of of the of this of the relationship. What's the other guy's name in Parks? and Rec? Ben Wyatt, and then some other, the other guy that I, so there's the one guy that sells all the good news, gets people all happy, and then there's me that says the bad bad news, like it gets everybody all bummed out. Uh, reality. So, um, so uh, we're we're gonna be looking at the back half of this, and that's how we're gonna treat most of these covenants over the next 12 weeks, 12, 13 weeks is. Um, by looking at uh, each covenant kind of in two parts, okay? So today we're gonna primarily be focusing on Genesis, or uh, we'll exclusively be focusing on Genesis chapter three. So if you have a copy of scripture, it's hard copy or on your phone, turn to Genesis three with me uh, this morning and uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Let me pray for us before we get started. God, we come to your word Uh, with desperate need. We confess, we lack. We are creatures of lack, in need. And we need what your word offers. We believe in the power of your Holy Spirit. We believe in your Spirit. So Lord, would you work mightily? Would you supply us with what we need? Would you reorient? Would you recalibrate? And would you redefine who we are in light of your beautiful design, would you be glorified and pleased with this time? Amen. Uh, a while back, one of the YouTube holes that I found myself trying to dig myself out of was those videos of squirrels trying to get to the bird feeders that that they're that the that they're ma- that the you know the people that have bird feeders out are trying to keep them from getting into, and so these squirrels will go through elaborate measures to get to these bird feeders, these, this forbidden uh, this forbidden uh, bird feed, and they'll jump great distances, they'll they'll go through obstacles, they'll do rope ladders, they'll climb through grease, g- climb over greased poles, and then and then what's the, what's the funniest, I think what draws us to these kind of videos, this, this squirrel obstacle course, is at the last minute when they're about to taste it, when they're about to get the bird feeder, uh, what happens they end up slipping and falling back down to the ground or they, they come within inches of jumping the great chasm uh, to the bird feeder and they fall down. So what, what, what it is is essentially these, these squirrels that have climbed to these great heights, uh, at the last minute everything is reversed, everything flips on its head and, and we're drawn to stories like that because they're funny but we see this all the time in movies, we see this in books and stuff that we read. We love these kind of stories where the bad guy, at the, uh, just as he's about to summon all of his, his, his evil powers and, and finally destroy the world, everything comes caving in and the whole script is flipped on him and he falls to his doom. And we, we're drawn to these kind of stories, I think, partly because we identify with them. Like, we've, we've all had experiences when we're about to get what we want, and then it slips through our hands. Uh, and that's going to be incredibly depressing. But then, uh, but also, I think there's another reason that we're drawn to these kind of stories, and it's because, I think, deep within our family history, deep in our family roots, is a story of reversal of things getting flipped around, of things not panning out the way we expect, of things at the last minute, flip, the script getting flipped. In Genesis chapter 3, it's often called the fall, that's how people would summarize it's is, is the fall of humanity, Adam and Eve fall, uh, by eating a fruit that they shouldn't have eaten. And that's a fine way of summarizing, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about it like that, but but maybe it's better to understand Genesis chapter three in the story of Adam and Eve in the serpent in, uh, in the garden with the serpent as a reversal. It's a story of reversal, of, of great exchange where everything is flipped. Uh, so let's read let's read this and I, as as we um, understanding this is it's it's understanding the fall as a reversal as an exchange. Uh, is key for us in understanding and us viewing the world correctly. I think when we understand the fall as a reversal, it will drastically change the way we confront the, uh, the effects of sin in our world. and It will drastically affect the way that we confront sin in our own lives, where we, the areas where we fall short. And it will affect the ways that we even understand what the gospel is, the grace that Christ offers us. Okay. So that's, what, uh, so that's part of what we're going to see. So let me read uh, for us Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's 24 verses long. So, uh, so if you just follow, but it's a story. So it's story time for the next few minutes, okay? So just read, lo- follow, follow along with me in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any o- other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree and that the tree was to be used to make one wise she took of of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin claws and they heard that the sound of the lord god walking in the Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat, eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat this plants of the field, but the sweat of your, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And and, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right. Now, there's a lot in that chapter. As as I said, it kind of sets the foundation, the tone for the rest of human history. Uh, And there's so much we could get into, and there's so much that we won't be able to get into. So I apologize in advance for not really following every thread here. But... Uh, But in particular, what we see here is in Genesis 3 is is the story of Adam and Eve making three fatal exchanges that set the course for the rest of Scripture. Three reversals, okay? So let's look at these now. Firstly, what we see is that sin exchanges our royal dignity for passivity and slavery. If you're following along in the handouts, uh, that's, that's the first blank. Sin exchanges our royal dignity for passivity and slavery. It all begins with a conversation, right? At the beginning of chapter three, we're introduced to a new character, the serpent who comes in. And we're not really told much about the serpent, but what we can say is that he's the embodiment of evil and Satan himself, right? The true and eternal enemy of God. And he's represented as a snake here, as an animal, as, as a member of creation. And that's significant because remember in Genesis one and two, we said Adam and Eve are to be kings, they're to represent the royal reign of God. And, and, and um, they were dignified royalty and in comes this lowly snake who's a member of the creation that they were supposed to exercise dominion over. And what does he say? He says, he manipulates them. He says, uh, uh, he says did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Okay, so he comes in questioning, did God actually say? And then he twists God's words. And if you, if you, if you, he, his, his, his skills of manipulation are exquisite. Any of you who have ever interacted with a truly manipulative person know that this is textbook stuff. They, they exaggerate. They twist the truth. They say half truths. They make you question reality itself. That's what manipulators do, and that's what that's what he's doing. And our father and mother, they fall into his tricks, hook, line, and sinker. Rather than ruling over creation uh, that that they're supposed to exercise dominion over, they're duped by it. Rather than wisely and boldly leading as discerning kings and queens, they take on the role of a passive pawn, trading royalty and dignity, for submission to a snake. Now remember, these are foundational verses for how we are to interpret interpret and explain the world around us, for what we see when we look outside. Moses wants us as a people of God to know how the world got to where it is today. And that's because just like Adam and Eve exchanged their rulership under God as royal representatives for slavery, so we often make this exact same reversal and exchange today. We were made, you were made, for a grand and a glorious task on this earth. You were commissioned for for grandeur and glory that you could not fathom to rule and reign with God. We were made for dominion in in the the fullest and the most life-giving best sense of that word. God has placed us on this earth to cultivate to create and to protect for the good of others and for the glory of God. That's why God had placed you in the job that you have. That's why God placed you in the family that you have. That's why God placed you in the church that you're in. It's to cultivate, to create, and to protect for the good of others and for the glory of God. That's why you go to work as a plumber or electrician or a teacher or a nurse or a doctor. That's why you have, that's why you're a mom, that's why you're a dad. It's to create, to cultivate, and to protect. For the good of others and for the glory of God. That's a royal commission that God has given you. Yet, our modern world and our flesh, we are hell-bent on enticing us to reject this royal status and instead embrace a kind of disengaged, apathetic passivity. As as the church in the Central Peninsula, in Sultan, Alaska, would we be a people who, who approach our relationships, who approach our, our careers, our vocations, our, our homes? With, uh, with, uh, with, uh, would we embrace our role as royal representatives? Would we reject the dulled-down, diminished, passive, apathetic view of life uh, that, that our culture would have us take? Would we cultivate, protect, and create for the good of others and the glory of God? Sin exchanges... Uh, royal dignity for passivity and slavery. But secondly, sin exchanges intimacy for independence and isolation. Now, uh, so uh, intimacy, uh, the relationship is an exchange for independence and isolation. Look at, look at chap- uh, ver- verse 5 of chapter 3. Uh, this, is, this is the essence of, of his lie. Uh, he says, God knows that when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is exactly what happens. This actually comes true. He's not, uh, uh, this, actually, this actually happened. Adam and Eve taste the fruit, as we read, and they know good and evil. God admits this. Mankind now knows good and evil. So what is this? What is this knowing good and evil? Why is that a bad thing to know good and evil? Well, here's, here's where I think the rest of scripture would have us believe what, 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 um, what is meant here by knowing good and evil. Knowing good and evil refers to our capacity to determine and to set for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We, it refers to our, uh, our ability to, to set for ourselves what is right and wrong. Okay, uh, so it's in essence, at its core, it's, it's an assertion uh, of our independence from God, it's, uh, to, who is the only one who rightfully has that capacity and authority to set what is right and wrong. So we're, what Adam and Eve are saying is, no longer will God get to determine good and evil, right and wrong. Instead, we get to decide what's right and wrong for myself. You don't set the rules, I do. It's an act of... Uh, of asserting independence from God. And if you have kids, you know this is how it works, right? Uh, when a kid wants a cupcake that he's been told not to have, uh, he, in that moment, is set, he sets, decides to set for himself what's right and what's wrong. He says, actually, it is right for me to have this cupcake, no matter what the rules are, no matter what my mom and dad say. And that, what is that? That's an expression of independence from, uh, from the authority of parents. And I think we all get this, right? Independence is one of our chief core values in our society. So we, uh, we empathize with Adam and Eve here. But notice, it doesn't just stay at independence, right? It doesn't stay at independence from God, as bad as that would be. It, it actually, as soon as the covenant is broken, as soon as they eat the fruit, that independence, it morphs. It changes instantaneously into something else. It changes to something far more tragic. Verse 7 says this, it says this, it says, uh, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, independence quickly morphs into isolation and shame from God. So here's, a, here's another puzzling thing. Why, why, what's the connection here? Why, was, why would knowing good and evil result in shame why would that involve why would they suddenly realize oh I'm naked now that's a bad thing right why would why would that happen what's the connection well here's what I think is going on nakedness is obviously incredibly exposing right Uh, our our nakedness exposes all of our physical imperfections the parts of our physical body that we'd be embarrassed for others to see but nakedness also symbolizes something deeper and, and Adam and Eve knew this It's the exposure of our physical imperfections point to the imperfections and the corruptions that lay deep within us, right? That's why we have nightmares of being on stage naked in front of a group of people, right? It's because psychologically deep down we know that that our nakedness represents exposure not just of our physical bodies but of the core of who we are and that's terrifying to us because As soon as Adam and Eve had the capacity to determine good and evil, as soon as they made that self-absorbed, independent claim, they realized something about themselves. That that there are corrupt, self-absorbed, impure desires within them. And as soon as they had the capacity to, to know good and evil, they knew, like we know, that evil lays deep within. And those are things that you and I would rather not anybody know about, right? Those are things we'd rather keep covered from God and from, and from others. So shame is what, what results. And isn't it true that so often our, our claims of independence from God end up shaping us in ways that we would never have expected, right? Adam and Eve, they just wanted independence. They wanted independence, what they got was isolation and shame. Maybe, maybe you're here, you're, you're, you feel distant and withdrawn from God, isolated from him. Anybody, I, I, I've been there many times. God wants something far more intimate and beautiful for your life. And in those times in my life when I've experienced isolation from God, I found it incredibly helpful to ask, to ask, it's not an easy question to ask, but to ask myself, where am I clinging on to my independence from God that's producing in me isolation and shame and separation from God. Where is my claims for independence producing in me isolation? When we exchange intimacy for independence, we get isolation, and that's never a good trade. Number three, though, third exchange, is that sin exchanges restful worship for idolatry and toil. Uh, we've looked already at the snake's words to Eve, right? Satan misrepresents, misrepresents God. He asks, "Did God really say?" But then here's the woman's response. Let's look. Let's look at that. Initially, she responds well. Eve says, "We may eat from from the from the trees of the gardens, right?" God didn't say that. God didn't say that we couldn't eat from any tree. He said we could eat from any tree we want. Uh, but uh, but then notice what follows. But God says that we must not. Uh, eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden which again is true and then she adds this little phrase of her own creation she says neither shall you touch it lest you die. So Eve just adds that part in and what, what's she doing what's what is she doing when she adds that little phrase that God did not say nowhere else in scripture does it say that that God said you can't, shall not touch that that tree. What she, she's already in her mind preparing to justify For what she's about to do she's already preparing to say look at how harsh and unrealistic and uh, extreme god is that he would even forbid me not to eat or touch this tree touch touch of this tree that doesn't make so she's so she's and in doing so she's distorting adding to the very words of god himself and now remember though She's supposed to be a co-priest, just like she was supposed to reign as a king and a queen. She was supposed to be a co-priest with Adam, facilitating the, the worship and glory of God. But here she is twisting God's words. What kind of priest does that? Right? That's how you know that you that, that a preacher's a bad preacher is when they're twisting the words of God. Right? In the same way, that's how uh, that's how we know that uh, that that that's a sign that that. Adam and Eve have fallen from their priestly commission, their priestly tasks. They, uh, so they twist God's word, they add to God's word, and then they go on to disbelieve God's word. Uh, and totally. And, and this is, and this, this is so they, not only do they worship a the, uh, false god, they enshrine themselves as god by claiming independence, but then they also twit and worship the, 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 the true god falsely. And that's the, kind of the full scope of the Bible's definition of idolatry. The false, worshiping false gods, but also worshiping the true God falsely. The full scope of idolatry. And so they fail as priests. And then as a result, uh, they, they, they no longer experience the rest that God offers. So uh, God, uh, they, were, they were intended to experience restful worship. God, by, by rejecting that rest, God hands them over to the de- desires of their heart. Did you notice that language at the end of at the end of the, the, the curses section? Uh, he, he all there, there's all this language about frustration and toil and exhaustion and hard work. There's going to be strain between the, the relationship between the man and the woman. Uh, there's going to be strain in, in the childbearing process. There's going to be the man is, is, is cursed with uh it with with having to work a cursed ground, and there's going to be uh, his he's going to be devoted to toil and labor, but painful labor by the spread of his bow, brow. So sin exchanges restful worship for idolatry and toil. You and I were created for for to reign with God, to be in in an intimate relationship with Him, and to rest in Him. Yet so often this rest can feel elusive. All right there are many in this room whose lives are not marked by rest, but by frenzy, by chaos, by busyness, by exhaustion. And I say that not as not to condemn. I, 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 there have been uh, uh, when, 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 a, when a preacher stands up here and says, you sh- "Your life should be marked by restful worship. You should be marked by abundant." peaceful, perfect rest, uh, you might be thinking uh, that might work for someone else, but you have no idea what's on, what's on my plate right now. Others of you might be in a place of a genuine despair. How could I possibly experience anything like rest uh, when I have to constantly tread water to keep from drowning? Right? And I want to I want to gently exhort you like I've had to gently exhort myself many times. Often the seasons in my life where I am experiencing the least amount of rest and the most amount of frenzy and stress are the seasons in which I've placed something other than God at the center of my universe. Right? I've made my own image the center. I've made my own comfort, my own security the, the, the center of my universe. And that idolatry, that false worship pushes me toward toil and slavery rather than rest. So don't exchange restful Uh, worship for idolatry to self and toil. Sin exchanges our royal dignity for passivity and slavery, it exchanges intimacy for independence and isolation and it exchanges restful worship